You can't be tired of it yet. How about them hawks? Woo! I'm telling you what, that last goal, it just will go down in infamy, won't it? Unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. We're going to put this on our church sign. We didn't have enough S's for our letters, so we couldn't do it, but we'll show you somebody else's. I think that's pretty good. Jesus saves souls. Yemi saves goals, baby, right there. That might be sacrilegious, so we didn't put it on our sign. We'll just see it, show you theirs. Uh, and speaking of sacrilegious, let's talk about legalism today. Who wants to talk about legalism? Listen, I hate stupid rules. I don't know if you know this or not. I grew up in the 60s. I question authority. I hate stupid rules. If you make a stupid rule, I will break it just so that I can break your stupid rule. The problem is, I went to stupid rule Bible college. I certainly did. I went to stupid rule Bible college. We couldn't have facial hair in my Bible college. Did you know that? Um, couldn't have facial hair. I don't know why. My first speech, I'm not making this up, my first speech in freshman speech class was entitled, Jesus Had a Beard. <laughs> I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up, Mr. Shaw. I'm not making that up. Jesus had a beard. And I, my very first forte into, and, and foray into uh, public speaking was to question authority. John Mellencamp wrote a song about me after I graduated from Bible college. When I fight authority, authority always wins. But I don't care because I'm going to keep fighting it. I hate stupid rules. I hate them very much. And I want you to know that because of stupid rules about facial hair, I have not had a clean-shaven face since the last week of Bible college, 1983. <clears throat> this is the truth. I just could, I mean, some of you have seen pictures of me, the, you know, the Magnum PI mustache stage and the full beard stage, and, and I've had this goatee for about 10 years. I don't even like this goatee. I, I hate this goatee. I hate, you know, trimming it, and you go to an Italian restaurant, and you get olive oil and Parmesan cheese in it, you know, when you're eating the bread. And it's a pain, but I don't think I can ever shave because if I ever shave and have a clean shaven face, I'm going to feel like I'm giving in to the man, and I can't do it. <laughs> I almost got kicked out of Stupid Rule College many times as a Bible college student. Shock. I did get kicked out of my dorm one time. You want to know why I got kicked out of my dorm? Now listen, there were a lot of reasons why I should have been kicked out of my dorm, but the reason I got kicked out of my dorm was because I had a sailboat in my room. I'm not kidding. I had a sailboat. I had one of those little sunfish, you know, kind of things, and it fit over the door and in between the two uh, closets, and I had it there for all four years. I, I loved it. I loved to sail. I'd take it out on the little lakes. It was like a chick magnet. Hey, you know, let's go. Let's go sailing, baby. You know what I mean? It was a great thing for me. I had it all four years. Finally, my senior year, my senior year, my dorm mom, who was like three feet tall, finally strained her neck around to look up far enough and realized that I had a sailboat in my room. And evidently there was some rule about large objects in your dorm, and she was mad enough at me for four years of living in her place, and she kicked me out of her dorm, literally. I got reinstated. Um, you know, I went and prayed with her and all those spiritual things that you're supposed to do at a Bible college. <sighs> but I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's not like that now. If you know the school to which I'm referring, it's a great school now, and I support them, and we support them, and they're doing a lot of great things. But man, back in the day, it was full of stupid rules, and it's so hard for us. It's so hard for me to keep the rules that are, that are good. Why do I need to keep stupid rules? It doesn't make any sense to me. Here are some real stupid rules still on the law books today. In Arkansas, it is unlawful to walk your cow down Main Street after 1 p.m. on Sunday. That is a law. 
in Ohio, it's illegal to get a fish drunk. <laughs> don't you just want to go try now? I mean, I, I don't even know. In Juneau, Alaska, flamingos are banned from barber shops. It is illegal in Connecticut to kiss your wife on Sunday. Mm -hmm. It is against the law in New York to throw a ball at someone's head for fun. That's a dodgeball rule, I guess. I don't know. In uh, Massachusetts, snoring is prohibited unless all your bedroom windows are closed and locked. In Rhode Island, any marriage where either of the parties is an idiot or a lunatic is null and void. So who's, who's married, right? In New Jersey, I love this. This is man law right here. It is New Jersey, it is against the law for a man to knit during fishing season. You should be out there fishing. Don't knit. That's just not right. In Maine, I like this one. After January 14th, you will be charged a fine if you still have your Christmas decorations up. January 14th. I agree with that one. Some of you still have them up. You're like, I'm waiting for it to get warm. Hello, take them down. My favorite, in Ohio, it is illegal for more than five women to live in one house. Can I get a shout out from you gentlemen? Is that not a good law? I lived with four of them most of my life here. I think that's a good law. I want to tell you that not only do, do, do I hate stupid rules, the world hates stupid rules. I'm not saying that rules aren't important. If we don't follow the real rules, society falls apart, and God gave us rules for a reason, okay? He gave us the Ten Commandments not because he wanted to make up some stuff to make us do it, because if you think about it, when's the last time you broke one of the Ten Commandments and it worked out good for you? It just, I mean, they're here for us, okay? God gave us those. He, he, is, he is a holy God and he understands us, okay? But the world has a hard time when I add stupid rules on top of the good rules. And they hate it when we think we're better than them because we follow rules better than they do. They, they really hate that. So we're going we're gonna to play a song for you from the world. Every once in a while, I want you to hear what the world has to think. This is a group called Paramore. And uh, those of you that just went, know that you probably would never expect to hear a Paramore song in church. But you need to hear this song because it's all about what the world thinks of us and our judgment and our adding rules and our pointing fingers at everybody else. The world doesn't like it. And the world thinks that all Christians are like this and we've got to change it. So first, here's a video demonstrating what they're talking about and then the band. That's rough, isn't it? That's what the world thinks. If God's the game you're playing, well, we must get more acquainted because it has to be so lonely to be the only one who's holy. You don't deserve a point of view if the only thing you see is you. You know what that is? That's the song of the prodigals. I said this last week. I'll say it one more time. I believe if Jesus retold the story of the prodigal son, it would, it would have to be the prodigal son in the 21st century. It would have to be that the prodigal son left home, went off and lived in wild living, did all the things the father didn't want him to do and spent all the father's money and went off and did all that. And then when he turned around to come home, instead of the older brother being out in the field, in the 21st century, I think the older brother would be in the driveway. And the older brother would be going, hey, wait a minute. You can't come in here. You don't deserve this. You've got you to gotta make it better. You've got to do the right things. You've got to do all the right stuff before this actually is going to be okay for you to come home. And the Father hates that. And Jesus hated that. It's what Jesus would hate. My comfort from uh, my rural college, too many dumb rural college days, my comfort was that, as I thought about it, Jesus probably wouldn't have lasted in my college either. 
oddly enough, not only for his wanton and destructive use of facial hair, but if he had... <laughs> if, he'd, if he'd gone out all night to pray, he would have been in trouble. If he was seen with the prostitutes, he'd have been in trouble. If he would have turned water into wine, out of there. <laughs> Am I right? And every time I read my Bible, I could kind of always see that Jesus and I had a lot in common. We were always in trouble for not following the stupid rules. And I read from Mark 2. On sat one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and, it, and his disciples were walking along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. They were hungry. They started to eat. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Pointy finger. Naughty, naughty. Mark 3. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Hey, stand up here in front of everybody. Okay? Jesus isn't going to hide it. He's getting ready to break a stupid rule and he's going to break it big and he wants everybody to see it. And Jesus said, Okay, you smarty guys, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent because they knew they had no answer. And the truth is, the Sabbath was a good rule. It still is. But they had taken this good rule and they'd made it stupid by their interpretations of it. All the different things that they said that you could do or couldn't do on this Sabbath that we were supposed to observe. And this guy needed healing. So Jesus looked around at them. Listen to this. And here's where I get the Jesus hate thing. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man with his teeth gritting, I believe, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said, how about if I heal you? I don't care what day it is. I'm going to heal you because I'm Jesus and that's what I'm about. This what would Jesus th hate thing that, I'm, uh, that I've been working through is that I, my premise of this is that every time I read the Bible, I see Jesus angry at some things. He's never angry at people. He's never angry at sinners. I mean, he's never angry at the people themselves. He's angry with what their behavior is, okay? Jesus doesn't hate the Pharisees. He doesn't hate the teachers of the law or the Sadducees. He certainly doesn't hate the sinners or the tax collectors or the prostitutes, but he hates behavior that get in the way of people coming to him. He hates it when people do things and add things and do rules and add rules that get in the way of people coming to him. I had to replace my uh, garage door opener recently. It had uh, taken a lot of abuse over the last 14 years for reasons which I'm not allowed to share publicly. The door was banged up, okay? And, you know, it was kind of bent and kind of, you know, out of shape and it was in the right place. So what happens when that happens to you? I don't know if this is theoretical for you or not, but when somebody who shall remain nameless backs into the door or grabs things on the door with the roof of the car too many times, what happens is the door gets bent out and those sensors don't allow you to open or close the door anymore. Right? You got those sensors. Back in the day, we used to have garage doors that just opened and closed and crushed people. But not anymore. <laughs> the good old days are gone. Now you've got those stupid little sensors, right? So when you're trying to leave from inside the house, you've got to push the button and run out and do the little dance and go out, right? <laughs> do the little safety sensor dance, right? Well, my safety sensors didn't work anymore because the door was all banged up for unnamed reasons. And so I had to figure out what to do. So I thought, well, I'll just disconnect them. Anybody tried that? Not allowed. You know, the government got some OSHA guy involved in this thing, and they said, you know what, you got to make this garage door opener not work unless the sensors are in place. So I tried to disconnect them. I tried to wire them together. I mean, I, I hate stupid rules. You know this, right? 
So I tried to wire them together to see if I could, you know, circumvent the process. No way. But I hate stupid rules so much, I will always find a way to beat them. You know what I did? I'm not proud of this, but... No, actually, I'm proud of it. I took the two sensors and I duct taped them to the wall sitting right next to each other. I'm not kidding. Duct tape fixes everything, ladies and gentlemen. I duct taped them right together so only like a, you know, a mouse running in between and on my wall could possibly get in the way. And as I thought about that, I've fixed it since then. Don't think I'm unsafe. I've got it, you know, I fixed the garage door. Everything's okay. But I, I, as I think about that barrier thing, what my, what my ministry call is and what Parkview's call is, is to try to get all our sensors, those things, those things that are going to keep us and God out of each other's relationship. And we want to just take them and duct tape them to the wall and get them out of the way. So freely God is able to walk to you and you are able to walk to him. I believe that's why Jesus came. He came to give us that freedom, to give us the ability to get to God and for God to get to us. And so we've got to take all these dumb things that people add and we've got to put them over on the wall and just tape them to the wall and get them out of the way. And one of the big ones is legalism. There's so much in the gospels about this. One of the experts, this is Luke 11, one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, you know, well, I'm, I'm really sorry. No, he didn't say that. He said, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. You load them down with burdens, okay? What they were doing is they were taking these, uh, you know, these commandments, these simple laws of God, these things that God wanted us to do because he wanted our lives to be good, right? And they took these laws and they started adding more rules on them. And so the point that where Jesus was saying, you know what, it feels like you guys are just adding all this weight and adding all these rules and you're nailing this burden down on top of people that they can't hardly carry. I mean, who wants to be a believer if you've got to walk around like this all the time? It doesn't work. Work. Mark 7, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, somebody said I looked like Mr. T at the last service, I'm <laughs> sorry. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of the disciples eating food with hands that were <gasps> unclean, that is, unwashed. Mark explains it. The Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. We're not talking about cleanliness here, we're talking about a ceremonial washing, okay? Unless they do the ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Again, I'm not talking about cleanliness. I'm talking about they went through this ceremonial thing. Okay, the OCD, anal retentive religious leaders. This is what we're talking about here, right? I mean, they're going to make sure that they got everything figured out with God. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said... Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food with their food with unclean hands? And Jesus said, again, he was nice, right? Jesus is always nice to him. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to the traditions of men. Son of hell is what Jesus said last week. You're making sons of hell. You're holding on to traditions. Let's talk about these traditions for a little bit. Heard about a woman who, a you know, 20-year-old woman, and she was making Christmas ham for the first time. And so she called her mom and asked her how to do it. And mom said, well, first thing you got to do is cut the ends off the ham and then put it in a pan and do all this other kind of stuff. And the girl said, how come we cut the ends off the ham? And mom said, I don't know. It's a good question. 
Let's call Grandma. So they called Grandma. They said, Grandma, why do we cut the ends off the ham? And Grandma said, you know, I don't really know. My mom always did it that way. Let's call Great Grandma. So they called Great Grandma, and they said, Great Grandma, why do we cut the ends off the ham? And Great Grandma said, well, I don't know why you do it. I just had a pan that was really small. (laughs) And so we end up with a tradition that gets passed down, and instead of the good commands of God that are there for our good, we end up with the traditions of men. Let's talk about the traditions of men. How many of you grew up going to church at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? 10 or 11 o'clock, right? Because that's the, that's the holy time to go to church. Do you know why? Because back in the farming communities, they started having church on Sunday morning, late morning, 11 o'clock, so that the farmers could milk the cows. How many of you milked cows before you went to church on Sunday morning? One of you? A couple? Okay, yeah. I mean, back then you did. You didn't today, right? I mean, so, but we still, could, we still call that a traditional time to do it. How about Sunday period, you know? How about Saturday or Sunday? Well, well we're not supposed to, we're supposed to worship on Sunday because that was the Lord's Day and that's when they worshiped back then. It's supposed to be on Sunday morning, Tim. That's what the Bible says. Does it? The Bible says they worshiped on the first day of the week, but you know they worshiped on Sunday night, right? You got that. Did you know that? They didn't worship on Sunday morning. They worshiped on Sunday night. How do we know this? Because there were slaves and there were commoners there and they had to work during the day. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll figure this out. There's no way they could have worked during the... They could have had church. They couldn't have had a 9 and 11 on Sunday morning because nobody would have been there. They had it on Sunday night. I'm sorry. Traditions of men started changing things along the way. Well, now that you mentioned Sunday night, Pastor Harlow, how come Parkview doesn't have a Sunday night service? Well, because I hate them. What happened to Sunday night services? Let me explain what happened to Sunday night services. You know what happened to Sunday night services? Those of you who grew up in that kind of a background, here's what it was, okay? You were a good Christian if you went every Sunday morning. You were a gooder Christian if you went on Sunday morning and Sunday night. And you were the goodest Christian if you went Sunday morning, Sunday night, and sang in a choir on Wednesday and went to prayer meeting. Am I right? Can I get a shout-out? Hallelujah. Okay? Let me, let me tell you how that happened. Back in the day, they used to have saved people services on Sunday morning, and the Sunday night service was the evangelistic service. And so they would get, you know, they'd do the hellfire and brimstone stuff, and they'd bring everybody together and have their revival-type service on Sunday night. But by the time I got into ministry, nobody was doing that anymore. All we did on Sunday night was the worst version of the Sunday morning service. And nobody wanted to be there. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to watch Wonderful World of Disney. That was the only time Wonderful World of Disney was on. But I had to go to church so I could be a gooder Christian or a good-ass Christian. Am I right? So why don't, I mean, we might have Sunday night services again sometime, but not another version of the warmed-up thing. That was just a tradition of men. How about the invitation hymn? Let me just keep going for a little while, okay? I know a lot of you, like me, grew up with an invitation hymn. You you thought the Apostle Paul wrote just as I am, didn't you? I understand that. And you know what? For a lot of churches and in a lot of time periods, the invitation hymn worked. And we used to have an invitation hymn here. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just put your fingers in your ears and go la, la, la for a minute, okay? We used to have an invitation hymn, but as the church got bigger and as we started looking at what was a hindrance to people coming to the Lord, it is a hindrance. If you grew up Catholic, you can tell me this, Catholics. You grew up Catholic, you were never going to walk forward in church unless somebody had a gun to your head. Am I right? No way, Jose, you weren't going up there. That wasn't cool. So guess what? The invitation hymn was invented in the 1800s. It's a tradition of men. How about style of music? That can be legalism, can it? Did you know that when they first started introducing pianos into worship services, it was a big deal, and a lot of people got mad, and a lot of preachers got fired? Do you know why? Because when they first started having pianos in worship services, the only other places that had pianos were bars and brothels. 
Well, imagine what life was like back then. All of a sudden, you bring in a piano. Now, a lot of you are like, well, we should just have the piano, you know? I don't like the drums. I don't like the guitar. I understand that. We played a Paramore song. I don't expect you to like all the music. I don't expect all those things. We can all have differing opinions. What I'm saying is that we can't make them traditions of men. We can't make everybody else follow along or we're in trouble. One of our friends, Matt, plays a guitar for another church, and he was playing for worship, and he was playing... Uh, He's playing, you know, just some like background music, just some, you know, just some pretty guitar music behind communion. And afterwards, a lady came up to him and said, you know what, your music, your music playing is urethral. It's really urethral. And Matt said, I, I, I think you meant ethereal. Because the last thing we need is worship music that makes me need to go to the bathroom. I understand that you may think some of the music we do is urethral. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with any kind of music, one way or another. There's not any specific kind of times of worship. There, there's nothing right or wrong about dress for worship or washing your hands before you eat or working on the Sabbath, okay? There's nothing right or wrong with the rules of God, and there's nothing right or wrong with the traditions of men. It's when we make them change that they become a problem. When we add works to grace, we have a problem. One of the worst stories I heard was from Africa. Mary Kamau is our lady that uh, started the ministry where we work in Nairobi. And when she was uh, in, in a teenager, she came to Christ and then uh, at a boarding school. And then she went home, and with some of her friends, she got her ears pierced. And she went back to school the next day, and all the good Christians said, oh, You've backslidden. You got your ears pierced. And she was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to get, how, how can I backslide if I didn't know I was doing it wrong? And they showed her scriptures. There are scriptures in the Bible that say you shouldn't adorn yourself with jewelry. As a matter of fact, we're going to follow the Bible exactly literally. You know, all you women should have a hat on or something over your head. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that we've got to figure out how this comes back to us, okay? And I want to tell you the truth. Mary Kamau, this wonderful woman, fell away from God because people told her that she had sinned by getting her ears pierced. And she was away from God for years until finally she met some other real Christians who said, you know what, it's not about the outside, it's about the inside. You're still saved, you're still a believer. And then God got a hold of her heart and she started this ministry that now gives 2,500 kids two meals a day and Jesus and a place to learn about Jesus. And many of them you have adopted yourselves and you're helping take care of. What would have happened if all Mary Kamau found were the chain people, were the people out in the driveway, the older brothers who said, you can't be a Christian because you got your ears pierced. I got this letter after last week. Pastor Tim, thank you for the sermon. It really unraveled a lot of, rest, uh, a lot of uh, issues I've been wrestling with. A lot of worries. I've been having about what it really means to be a good Christian, in parentheses, in, in quotation marks, and if I could ever attain that lofty status. I was not raised with God in my life, and I've only been a believer for a few years, so I'll admit that there's a lot I don't know, and I'll probably never know, but I feel like I'm falling short of what it means to be a good Christian, to standards that are set so lofty. Yeah, I really hate the term good Christian, she goes on. That right there is a huge wall that stops people from being Christians. 
that you have to dress a certain way or carry yourself a certain way or go to church or sit in the front of church or read your Bible a certain way or speak a certain way or think a certain way or eat or take communion a certain way or be schooled a certain way. If you do all these things, then you're a good Christian. When you look at it this way, the problem is that no two people agree on what a good Christian is, but we come and we put all these extra strings attached to being a good Christian. And I think it's one of the biggest reasons why people decide against Christianity is that they can't live up to the standards that have been set by other Christians. Why bother? And when you try to live up to those standards, you know you're going to fall short and you're going to get discouraged because we can't leave up, live up to that. We don't have a remote chance. It's impossible. So it's a never-ending cycle of failure. And who wants to be a failure? So you leave. Or you don't even go in in the first place. Or you just get all disgusted by the other churchgoers because you can also see that they're not living up to those standards and that they have the audacity to go out and spit those things out to everybody else. It's no wonder, she said, that people are afraid to come to church or be Christians. It's not about those silly standards we humans set. Only one person is there in the end that we have to answer to, and that is the Father. And he knows our true heart. And maybe that's why he loved the children and their childlike faith so much. That was awesome. There's no such thing, my friends, as a good Christian. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Good Christian is an oxymoron. You can't be a good Christian. I'm telling you right now. You want to know why? The Bible says our best righteousness is like a filthy rag. And it's around dinner time, so I won't even explain to you what that term filthy rag means. Our best righteousness is like a filthy rag. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. If the Apostle Paul's not a good Christian, what makes you think you are? We're all sinners saved by grace. That's all we are. And the problem is when we start putting this legalism thing out there and we start adding all these rules, all we're doing is trying to make everybody like us. We're trying to make everybody the same. Did you know there's such a thing as a square watermelon? Did you know that? I will show you pictures from the internet to prove it. They grow these in Japan. I did a little, I just heard this this week. I did study on this. They grow them that way. You know how? In a glass box. They put the seed, you know, they put the, the vine in. When the thing gets started, they put it in this glass box, and it grows to fit the box. They do this in Japan because it stacks easier and it ships easier and because this watermelon perfectly fits in a Japanese refrigerator. I'm not making this up. You can go look it up, okay? It's a, it's a wonderful thing if you live in Japan and space is at a premium. I get that. But the problem is... What I see so many churches doing is getting this little glass box. And we had, a, we had a glass box when I was growing up. We had a glass box in my Bible college. And a lot of times I feel like everybody ought to fit into my little glass box. And all Christians ought to look the same. And then every once in a while I meet somebody that believes a little different than me or acts a little different than me or looks a little different than me. And they still seem to be following Christ. And I'm like, wow, you're not a square watermelon. What's wrong with you? And then I realized that God made watermelons to be small or big or different colors, different flavors. And I think God made Christians to be exactly the same thing. Listen to this, okay? It gets better. Not only does Jesus hate legalistic behavior, but Paul doesn't like it either. The chief of sinners guy, I know you may not have as much respect for him now that you heard he called himself that, but listen to what Paul says. He wrote most of the New Testament one way or the other. It's a hot issue for Paul. They were dealing with it a lot back in the day because these people, these Christians, these Jewish Christians were saying that the Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised before they became Christians. There's an evangelism tool, <laughs> right? Hey, why don't you come to my church? I'm not kidding. That's what, A bunch of letters in the New Testament were written for that, right? As a matter of fact, 
the apostle Peter got sucked into it and Paul had to confront him. This is what a big issue this is. And Paul calls legalistic people dogs. Literally calls them dogs. Listen to what he says to the church of Philippi. Watch out for those dogs. I mean, I'm not talking about like puppies. I'm talking about dumb, nasty animals. The literal Greek translation of this is cats, really. Okay, watch out for those. Watch. That, that was funny. Watch out for those dogs. Listen to this. Those men, those men who do evil, those mutilators of flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. It's we who worship in the spirit of God. It's not about what you do to yourself. It's the spirit of God. It's we who glory in Christ Jesus. We who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says what you do to your body or don't do to your body is not going to save you or condemn you. If it's earrings, if it's tattoos, if it's circumcision, I don't care what it is. Listen to what Jesus said to the hand-washing people. Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, Listen, hello McFly, and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. What comes out of his mouth makes him unclean. It's what's in here. It's what's in your heart. Paul goes on, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Wow, doesn't that sound like a nice Christian message? It doesn't matter what you do to yourself or don't do to yourself. What really matters is faith expressing itself through love. And that would be a good place for Paul to stop. But Paul's a little bit, you know, edgy, like I sometimes am. And he goes on and he says, As for those agitators, those dog people, I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. That's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. Paul is talking about legalistic Christians. Evidently, this is a behavior that not only Jesus hates, but Paul's not real happy about it either. I don't want to get literal on the translation of this. I think you can understand it pretty well for yourself. Jesus was angry, and Paul told him to go get Lorena Bobbitt. Okay, you're getting me? That's how seriously God hates these chains. Again, go back to God on this, okay? If God is our heavenly father and he's waiting for the prodigal son to come home, how would God feel if the older brother's out in the driveway and he says, hey, you can't come home today because it's the Sabbath and you weren't supposed to be walking on the Sabbath. I mean, that's the truth. You're not supposed to be doing that, so you can't come home today. Hey, you can't come home today because you didn't wash your hands the right way. Hey, you can't come home today because you don't have the right version of the Bible. Hey, you can't come home today because you never got circumcised. How does that work? Dad would be furious. Dad would be absolutely furious. And the rest of the world doesn't like it either. We come off like this pit bull who decided to do battle with a porcupine in his backyard in Southern California. It's okay. The, the uh, veterinarian sedated the dog. It's a true picture. Sedated the dog and took out 1,347 quills out of the dog. Too stupid not to mess with the porcupine. And when I saw that picture, somebody, people send me the goofiest stuff. When I saw that picture, I thought, that's how the world feels. That's how Paramore felt at some point along the way in their relationship with Christian people. They felt like they were always running up against porcupines. Every time they would run up against a porcupine, they would point their finger at them. They would prick them with the quill. Where's the love of God? Where's the love of Jesus? The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Do you find 
doing that? No, most Christians are porcupines when it comes to this issue because we have these chains. We have these issues that we can't get by. And I'm going to tell you, I'm one of them. I have done it so many times. And I told you about my science thing last week. Let me take you back to Bible college, okay? They sucked me in in Bible college, I've got to admit. At some point along the way, they sucked me in. This was back, you've got to understand that this is back during the rock war days. This is when Christians first started figuring out that rock songs had some bad lyrics. And not only did we figure out that rock songs had some bad lyrics, but we found out that if you play them backwards, they say really naughty things backwards. Did you know that? And they used to pick on some of my favorite songs, and I was so conflicted, you know? I mean, Hotel California and Stairway to Heaven, if you played them backwards, they were bad. And I was like, wow, those are the songs they played at every dance I went to in high school. And then they'd go, you went to dances in high school? <laughs> and I'd say, well, yeah, I did. And I hated Stairway to Heaven because you'd get right to the end with your best girl, you know, and you'd be dancing along, and... Then they kick into that, and there's a wino down the road, or whatever they said. I don't know what it was. And it just blew the whole thing. And I would go into my whole explanation, and they would, they would say, oh, rock music is of the devil. And they'd play me something backwards, and I started going, wow, maybe they're right. Do you know that that has not gone away? I did a little research on the Internet. Dora the Explorer theme song, if you play it backwards, says, Hail Satan. I'm not kidding you. Go on Google. You'll find it yourself. Dora the Explorer, she's of the devil. Mm. I knew that. You probably did, too. Anyway, I digress. So I, uh, I'm sucked into this thing, and I'm like, oh, rock music is bad. I've I got to be honest with you. I started believing that rock music was bad, but I never burned my albums or my tapes. I never did. I still have them. Okay? But, but there was this time. I, I'm not proud of this. I'm going to tell you. There was this time when Alice Cooper came to Joplin, Missouri. I don't know why he you know, had stooped that low at this point in his life. But Alice Cooper came to Joplin, Missouri to do a concert, and we Holy Bible College students decided that we were going to go picket the Alice Cooper concert. And I don't know why I was included in the Holy group, uh, you know, this time. They didn't usually include me in that. But for some reason I went, and I can very strongly remember the feeling of sitting there, this group of, you know, Bible College students yelling at the people in line for Alice Cooper and some people even had signs. I don't know what they said. I mean, it, it was the weirdest thing. And I can remember us yelling at them, and I can remember them yelling at us, and I can very strongly remember the feeling of, what is this going to do to help anybody? How is this helping? I felt a little like a porcupine, like a son of hell or something like that, you know? And so I just want to... I just want to say that if you were at the Alice Cooper concert in Joplin, Missouri <laughs> in 1982, I'm really, really sorry, okay? Because that was just stupid. It reminds me of the things that Jesus said in Jesus' day and Paul said in his day. You know what? The truth of the matter is we're all sinners and we're nobody good enough to make it into the kingdom of heaven. It seems to me that in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, the religious people who followed the rules the best were actually the ones who were farthest from God. And it seems to me that in Jesus and Paul's day, those that were farthest from keeping the rules became the closest to God. Steve Brown wrote a great book called Scandalous Freedom, The Radical Nature of the Gospel. And he says this, The good news is that Christ frees us 
from our need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, our correctness. Religion has made us obsessive almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us, listen to this, Jesus invited us to a dance. And we've turned it into a march of soldiers. Always checking to see if we're doing right and if we're in step and in line with the other soldiers. And we know that a dance would be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. That is so true. He also said this, listen to me, you are really and truly and completely free. There's no kicker. There's no if and or but. You are free. You can do right or wrong. You can obey or disobey. You can run from Christ or run to Christ. You can choose to become a faithful Christian or an unfaithful Christian. You can cry, cuss, spit, or you can laugh, sing, and dance. You can read a novel or read the Bible. You can watch television or pray. You are free. You are really free. And then he finishes up this way. He says, you ought to live your life with such freedom and joy that uptight Christians will doubt your salvation. I like it. You ought to live your life with such freedom and joy that uptight Christians will doubt your salvation. And Paul said it that way too. He said, it is freedom, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That was Paul. It's in the Bible. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his, fair, and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with these people? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So how do you think you'd feel about this sign? How do you think you'd feel about this sign, hell's most wanted? Repent, turn to Jesus. How do you think you'd feel about that sign? I don't want to make light of this list. Many of the things on this list are not about legalism. They're really about real sin. And sin keeps us from being close to God. And not only that, but sin messes up our own lives. And that's why God gave us rules in the first place. Please don't think that this whole freedom in Christ thing means it's a good idea to sin. Sin is going to mess up your life. And not judging your brother or sister in Christ doesn't mean that we shouldn't help restore our brother and sister who are stuck in a sin. If you're in a restaurant and you see me with a glass of wine, you should mind your own business. But if you're in a restaurant and you see me knock down three Long Island iced teas and grab my keys and go drive, you should stop me. You have a moral, ethical, and holy reason to stop me. Okay, there's a difference between pulling the plank out of my eye and getting the sawdust out of your eye and helping a brother out of the situation that they're in. Sin is horrible. Sin is bad. You shouldn't live in it because it's messing up your life. But I agree with Stephen Brown. One more quote. The only people who are better, who are, are, are going to get better, are people who know that if they never get better, God is going to love them anyway. It's only in freedom that we will ever grow to be more like Christ. It's only the people who get who the only people who get better are people that if they never get better, know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. What that sign should say is heaven's most wanted, shouldn't it? As a matter of fact, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6. He pulls out a list not unlike the one that you saw on that 
billboard just now, on that picket sign just now, and he said, you know what? None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know why? Because God can't be around sin, and that's the truth. And then he adds verse 11. He says, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love the message translation. It says, a number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago you were on that list. Since then you've been cleaned up and given a fresh start by Jesus, our Master, our Messiah, and by our God present in us, the Spirit. Now we can live like we're free. We're planting a church in Salt Lake City with some very creative people fifth-generation Mormon, as a matter of fact, is that voice that you're going to hear. They made this little video. I want to play it for you, and then we'll close. It kind of summarizes the whole thing I'm telling you right now. Here we are in Salt Lake City. In whatever city you're in, you're going to find people talking about God and how to be close to God, that God wants you to do good things and stop doing bad things. Some people are saying things about God like this and other people like this. And we're told that the stakes are kind of high, right? So we pull ourselves together, get ourselves to church, and start doing what is right. But here's the dirty little secret of religion. If you try and try and try to make yourself good, you either somewhat succeed, you expect God owes you something in return, and you look down on other people who aren't as good, all the while a little nervous that someone's gonna get to know the real you. Or you get fed up with it all. You're mad at yourself for being a failure, and you're mad at this whole institution that makes people behave this way. Here's the thing. Jesus taught that you are completely incapable of being good. Not just sort of incapable, maybe if I try a little harder, but completely incapable. But God is bigger than you, and fortunately, loving and creative. Jesus taught that God's Spirit can take this stuff that's in you and replace it with this. Seriously, you, you can't do it, but God's Spirit can. What does this mean? It means that if Jesus was right, you shouldn't focus on trying to be good and trying to make other people good. Stop. Seriously, stop. Because you're trying to be good is actually distracting you from what is really, truly good, which is God's forgiveness, creativity, and love. Jesus said that he's creating a new reality. And only he can do this. We believe that Jesus is right. So church isn't a place to get your stuff together or show God how deserving you are. A church is a group of people in one city who remind each other of what Jesus said and did. And simply let that truth change us. I have a link to that on the front page of our website if, you, if that's something that you think, man, I know somebody that needs to, isn't that good? If you know somebody that needs to see that, you uh, go to the front page of our website and you link it to them and send it to them. It just perfectly illustrates. Listen, I don't know why people have put chains on you. I don't know what's gone on here, but I hope that you understand that you can never be a good Christian. I, as a father, don't expect my daughters to be perfect, and I certainly don't want anybody else imposing their standards on my daughters. I love them the way they are, and I always will, and they know that, and that's why they're at home when they're with me. And that's how God feels about you. Well, every time you think about, if everything you, time you think about God or going to a church, you feel like there are chains on you, I hope that 
right now as we take communion, that you will just take those chains off and you will just lay them down and that you will take communion and you will realize, oh man, I'm not kidding, that feels good. You will realize that Jesus died for all of that stuff and he just wants to dance. He just wants to have a relationship with us. And on your way out, <clears throat> up front you can see we've got a lot of these little uh, keychain carabiners. We bought these for you. They're for you. On the carabiner it says, break free. And there's a scripture card attached to it that says, Galatians 2.15, we know that man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. And this is my gift to you. You take this, put it on your keychain, put it on your laptop bag, put it on your car, and you take this, and next time you feel like somebody's putting chains on you, remember that you are free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. And maybe there are people here who the Son hasn't set free. They need to come to you. They need to open up their hearts to you. I pray that they'll do that right now and just say, Jesus... I need you in my life. I need you to be my Lord and Savior. I realize I can't do it on my own. I realize that if Paul was the chief of sinners, I don't stand a chance of getting to heaven on my own. And I know I'm a sinner. And I need you, so I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And I give you my life. Lord, I know that as we walk in grace and as we walk in freedom, we will, as that drama showed us earlier, we will naturally start to do the things that you really want for us. And righteousness and holiness will become a part of our lives. But that will happen in love, not in fear. Lord, be with us as we commune with you right now. We remember that this body and this, this bread and this juice represent your body and your blood. That you came and canceled the written code and nailed it to the cross, Paul said, so that we could be free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.